Welcome back to the Adam Allen Bookman podcast. This is episode three. We're discussing Ian Wright and his life in football. We enjoyed this one so much. There's so much to get in that this episode has been cleaved into two separate episodes. It was released in 2016 when Ian Wright was 52 years old. Johnny. Are you sure about this? So, I think we've read the wrong books. Ed. Uh, I wrote, I read Mr. Wright, the explosive autobiography of Ian Wright, published by HarperCollins Willow on the 1st of January 1997. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Nice. Uh, anyway, sorry, that was easy enough, wasn't it? That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Don't leave us in your knob. All right then, okay. All right then. Well, this is a very enjoyable book, really a lovely book, very well written, and uh, dedicated to Mr. Higdon, who we'll come on to later. Um, Ian Wright, A Life in Football, as you said, published in September 2016. It's described, it was described by the Sunday Post as a warm and engaging read. Mm, exciting. Uh, in terms of reviews, I got four, 4.05 on Goodreads and I got 4.4 on Amazon. Well, for my tuppence, yeah, I'd say as football books go, this is definitely in the, the better side of things. It's a... It's an honest book, I think. I think he uh, confronts his own shortcomings. It's genuinely quite interesting. His childhood is actually genuinely very interesting, whereas normally these are things I want to skim over the most in a football autobiography. Yeah, he comes across as very, very generous to people with whom he's grown up. And to anyone who's ever given him help, he seems not to have forgotten at all. Mm. Yeah, genuinely comes across really well without trying to be too self-aggrandizing. He's he's kind and he's generous and very willing to admit his faults. Yeah, I think he's got a real humility and I think it 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 it, it came from the very, very start of the book. Just immediately what was what struck me was that Wright talks about other people a lot. Like Wright started by talking about Wenger and Vieira, for example, and seeing them in this period of time when obviously Arsenal were on the on the cusp of this, what proved to be wildly successful uh, change in era, but just his initial um, his initial uh, views of them, and I think he described it was a scene in the dressing room. They had come to, you know, just to be around the game. I think it was a European game, maybe, and uh, he described the scene in the in the dressing room as being like a chimps party. So, I think from the start, it seemed like it might be a bit of fun, and also. I think there's a warmth to to write that is not um doesn't seem put on or contrived or fake or anything. I think it's 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 really there. He's a nice guy and um I you know, I, I felt like I was rooting for him. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you've seen anything to do with Ian Wright on the media, I mean he just it's just his honesty and his yeah, warmth comes through. He's very progressive, he's a big advocate for women's soccer. 
Yeah, the kid's a good guy. I mean, he, he is a good guy. And I guess I went into that, I uh, went into this book with that in my head, but it, that's only compounded. I mean, he just comes across as someone who wants to learn, somebody who wants to improve himself, somebody who wants to have a laugh. He doesn't never takes himself too seriously. It's never particularly um, uh, preachy. It's just the man just, I don't know, he lives life right. Yeah. That was no pun intended. Yeah, um, you know, uh, I had just when I was reading it, I listened to a few interviews and whatever, read a little bits and bobs around it, about him as well. And I heard one interview where he was saying he was on when he was initially on uh, uh, BBC on Match of the Day, they used to kind of like put him on as kind of the band guy at the end, you know, and I think that kind of wore on him eventually. But he said that Alan Hansen used to steal his lines. He'd say something to Hansen in the break and then whoever it was, Des Lynham would, would, would go to Hansen first. And Hanson would take Wright's line and then it would go to right and he'd be like, oh, he just have something lame and, and, and uh, jokey to say, which was pretty, pretty nice. Um, do you want to maybe it would be sensible to uh, give the kind of rough contours of the book? Do you want to? It starts off with meeting Arsene Wenger, then his time at Arsenal through George Graham and Riok and then obviously Wenger. Part two, his title, An Incredible Journey, that's from his childhood, his unhappy childhood, to eventually making it as a soccer player. Part three, Life Goes On, that's his life after football, where I think we can agree with some highs and lows. And then the last part is in Wright's life now, or at least as it was in 2016. He very, very generously, the very last chapter is devoted to David Rowcastle, who was a former teammate who died very young and was a, a fabulous football player a little bit before my time, but uh, someone I've always heard of, spoke of as a really, truly great player. Anyway, but yeah, that's a testament to Wrighty, but that's how we finish his book with a kind word about someone else. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a certain classiness to, to Ian Wright. And like I said, maybe, maybe. I think maybe to some extent I had him in my head as, as you know, kind of a kind of a fancy kind of fella. Maybe maybe didn't give him full credit. I think he's a much deeper thinker than I than I maybe considered. You know, I, 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 he's always come across as a warm fella, but he's he goes into themes in this book that you know I think are really really interesting. Like just uh, obviously race being a big factor, uh, race as a as a as a black footballer in England in the 70s 80s and so on growing up very interesting but yeah uh there's a there was a there was quite a bit of intellectual fodder in there really maybe that i didn't fully fully expect no i genuinely learned some things from this book i genuinely did i i, I looked at new aspects certainly his life growing up in london was absolutely fascinating certainly from my perspective i'm english you know i grew up 200 miles away i mean obviously not in london but you know, from the uh, confines of my little middle-class white life. This is a world I don't recognise at all, which he gave me an introduction to, which I, which genuinely was absolutely fascinating. The the music and the people he used to hang around with uh, growing up in London. It was genuinely, truly interesting and uh, not something I wanted to skip over at all, as I normally would do in a football's autobiography. Normally, I just want to give me the goals, give me the trophies. But this, this was not the case. It really was a real insight into his life and uh, a life as a, a black man growing up in London in the 70s and 80s. 
Would you like some in right facts? Would you like some facts? Yeah, I would. About yeah, I would. Man himself. He's known for his speed, agility, finishing, and aggression. Did you know that? Yeah, that's how I would uh, characterize him. Yes. Okay. He played 581 league games, scoring 287 goals for seven clubs in Scotland and England. He had 33 caps for England, scoring nine international goals. And yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts about his England career in a minute, actually. Um, at Arsenal, he won the Premier League, the FA Cup, the UEFA Cup Winners' Cup. I remember that game. That was when Alan Smith scored, right? Um, the League Cup, and he won the Premier League Golden Boot. Did you? Would you have known what year that was? Do you know what year it was? 92-93? I think it was 92, yeah. His first season at, at Arsenal. 185 goals for Arsenal, 117 for Palace. That's not a bad uh, career for by anyone's standards. And of course, uh, uh, quite famously, Wright is another player who came to it much later. He didn't become a professional until he was 22, and he was a professional well, for 15 years. I mean, I think that's, yeah, he talks about this at length, but he made an unprecedented uh, step up in terms of football in a way that, yeah, he can't think of anyone else who had a comparable step up. He went from the lower leagues, proper lower leagues, straight yeah. to the second division in England and within two or three years into the Premier League and the yeah. England team. Yeah, astonishing. It's genuinely an astonishing story and it's a testament to his drive and determination and skill. Uh, and agility, finishing, and aggression, not to mention those. That's what I was going to say. Those characteristics. All right, so part one, Ivory Eye. This focuses a lot on uh, the demise of George Graham and the rise of Wenger. Do you remember that uh, at the time, Johnny, the George Graham bung scandal? Yeah, uh, as in, I remember being in the news and... Uh, it being vaguely about bravery, I suppose. Yeah, I think I do, yeah. No, I definitely do, yeah. Do you remember the, like, did you get a lot of detail about it at the time? What, did he actually get prosecuted in, Graham? Oh, criminally prosecuted? I don't know about that. I don't think so. I mean, he came back, didn't he? He did come back to football. Oh, yeah, of course. Sure, right talks about him uh, becoming Spurs manager, which was... Yeah, he... He lost a lot of respect for him from that day, didn't he? Like, I mean, he, he's trying to say like, but oh, he he lost a good deal of respect for him there. Yeah, and one thing that struck me about Wright is, um, and it seems almost kind of like old fashioned, is like this idea of clubs having a very definitive identity, and Arsenal having been, you know, Arsenal in particular. But he talks about it with West Ham as well, but like Arsenal, you know. The Arsenal way you do things right, they don't sack managers. He, he keeps going on about this kind of stuff. So, like this, he's re, he's very tied up in Arsenal, which is not a big surprise given that he's a, he's a club legend and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, he was he was sickened by him going to Spurs, isn't he? He really was. I mean, he really you just you just don't do that. No, it really comes across how much he is a fan, right? I mean, he is a fan. I mean, he it will be critical, but. Yeah, I mean, refers to them as magnificent. Like, why well, this is why we are magnificent at some point in the book. And I just thought that's that's the way I talk about my team. Like, and it's again, it's just totally endearing. Like, very, very sweet. Yeah, there is a yeah. I suppose at times uh, he does have a kind of a, a kind of a childlike in, uh, effusiveness about these things, which, as you say, is quite was quite charming. Um, but okay, Graham, what he had done essentially was he was taking money for. Transfers, yes? 
Yes. Um, now, were there particular players, do you remember, or was everyone? I believe it was John Jensen was a player in particular, mm. and it was a reason that, uh, that it refers to that as like, well, John Jensen getting... So, yeah, I think it's interesting how the players turned against him um, mm-hmm. after he'd stolen. I mean, he was, he was over $400,000, but £400,000, excuse me. But I think what's very interesting is that they're resentful because he was so tight with their contracts. Yeah, exactly. Like he would, apparently, he would really try to squeeze them. Now, as the manager rather than the money man, why would he do that, Johnny? I find I think that's interesting. Yeah, well, maybe it's a sign of the times as well when when managers controlled more around the around the the you know they obviously talk about this the transition from you know to the Peps from the Ferguson era I guess when Ferguson had control over signings and all the rest of it so maybe that's maybe that's it maybe he did have some like budgetary responsibilities but also I think this is true of managers in life in general if there's one thing that people are like it is hypocrisy right like, absolutely yeah and if he's yeah he's nickel and diamond those guys and then he's on the, other, on the other hand he's like pocketing whatever it is whatever it might have been i guess 30 40 50 grand at the time it's like yeah fuck this guy um yeah because there's a point i mean it says here um Mickey Thomas, when he went from Arsenal to Liverpool, I remember that after he'd scored the goal, which lost Liverpool the title, he said that he'd been on three or four times the wages he was at Arsenal at Liverpool. Three or four times. I found that to be astonishing. Well, and is. a testament to how much people must have loved Arsenal, but he keeps saying he wasn't there for the money, he wanted to play for the Arsenal. He wanted to play, but he wasn't interested in the money. Yeah, and again, uh, he, he said he got 700 pounds more a week to play for Arsenal compared to Palace which I guess in terms of the step up you I guess he probably expected a bit more and again an endearing uh, in right kind of anecdote it's like he was in the car worried about what he's going to tell his wife that he's only going back with 700 quid more thought that was quite sweet um yeah Graham like what were your memories of Graham obviously he's kind of a taciturn character isn't he or was well, that's right. I mean, he was very famous. I mean, the Arsenal offside trap. I mean, that's what he was. He was a defensive coach. 1-0 to the Arsenal. It was very, very famous at the time. I mean, remember in the full Monty, there was a whole yeah. there was a whole skit about Arsenal and their defensive organisation. So, yeah, that's how I remember him. as kind of a negative football coach. Somebody who wasn't trying to play football particularly, but clearly very, very effective. Yeah. You know what Wright, I think, does well in the book generally and certainly with graham his he does criticize him as you say he kind of he goes at him for his involvement in this bung stuff he he criticizes his approach to football and uh, and obviously as we mentioned for the spurs thing but he also talks about how he's, he was a really charismatic fellow at times who could really like build you up in terms of your confidence and i think right there's this throughout the book he gives m- more than one side of an individual and at times he's really really quite cutting about people that he then goes on to say that he really has huge affection for so i wonder was there much of a fallout like for him in terms of the book no well, that's it i mean he does he gives a full dressing down of george graham what he did but then i was just astonished to read 
But the man who had the most impact on my football career was George Graham. Yeah. He was best because of how he motivated me at a time when I need motivating in exactly that way. Now, considering he starts the story with meeting Wenger, and then there's a whole lot of thing about how Wenger changed his life. In the end, he said George Graham was the manager who had the most impact, not Steve Coppola who took him into professional football, not Wenger who restarted the whole game in England. It was George Graham. So, yeah, that's right. I mean, he is both sides, but ultimately he's very, very respectful to him. Just disappointed he went to Spurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, whatever he says about Graham, the React stuff was fun, wasn't it? Bruce React stuff. The Bruce React stuff is is lovely. I mean, and it's absolutely astonishing little anecdote, really just absolutely unnecessary as well, completely and utterly unnecessary. It has no relevance to the book at all. Ian Wright just wants you to know but at some point in his football career, Bruce Brehock knocked out a 17-year-old kid and kicked his head in. In training, right? In training. But yeah. He like, doesn't need that for the book. He no. just wants to paint a picture of the man. He really doesn't like it. Yeah. So there's no, there's no question of painting, you know, two sides to Rehock. So Rehock was from this uh, military background. His father was a drill sergeant or something like that. And that's what... That's what Riak was like, you know, has, has some running up and down hills, singing, ch- ch- doing chants about never giving up, that kind of stuff, you know, like really, um, really just seems out, out of date, especially later when we're, we're looking at Fenger uh, and the likes of Burkham coming in. But yeah, it was funny to hear him talking about um, just this carry on in, in, in training games and how Riak was just trying to be like an actual player in the training games, in tra- like with top quality players and just essentially just fouling them and kicking them all the time and then uh, right one day just laid them out in a match in a training match that was really enjoyable and so the whole the whole dog ground or whatever the training pitch everybody's just in this stunned silence for a minute as they try to figure out what Riak is going to do after he's been laid out by right but he he just kind of gets up and and, and whatever gets on with it because he's a I guess he's a manly guy yeah I think uh, this is a Another thing which really uh, turned him against Rioch is uh, it didn't get any better when he stopped a training session once to tell me in front of everybody what I could learn from watching the runs made by John McGinley, the striker <laughs> when he was at Bolton. He'd do that to others too. Use Bolton players as examples of what they should be doing. When you get that right, it's like, look at these tangibly worse players. And just on the topic, Al, of like putting in unnecessary digs, he also uh, right goes out of his way to banish the, you know, that kind of... It's kind of a trivia question, isn't it? Who signed Dennis Burkamp? That's what I've got written down here. <laughs> That's for me, was Bruce Rioch's only legacy at Arsenal was, what? well, you know, he did bring in Dennis Burkamp. No, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 he didn't. That was the wonderful, my God, David Dean. How much does Ian Wright love David Dean? Yeah. But yeah, it was absolutely not Rioch bringing him in. Absolutely not. It was David Dean who signed David, Dennis Burkamp and gave him a wonderful present. <laughs> actually you know like i said he he does stick the boot in on, on a few people but riot gets it as bad as anyone and maybe the most the person he kind of unreservedly kind of seems to dislike the most just as far going back a little bit i just wanted to leave this out a lot of the time uh going back to the first chapter he talks about how it was ready for graham to go and it was because of the players he started to bring in now this is this comes up a few times, and this is what Ian Wright says. 
I don't mean to be disrespectful. Stop. At this point, yes, he does mean to be disrespectful. At this point, he's going to tell you, and this, this cops up again and again. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but the fans all know who I'm talking about. The bad players, Chris Kuomia, Glenn Helder. Chris, I love this. My dear friend, Eddie McGoldrick, <laughs> Paul Leverson. <laughs> yeah, he's a, his very dear friend, who he name-checks as being not good enough to play alongside him and not good enough for the Arsenal. I really got a kick out of that. Like My yeah. dear friend. He goes back to uh, Chris Cormier later, uh, and you know, like I say, there's things in this book that just never would have occurred to me. But right as a as a as a black Londoner, found it really entertaining when he met black Englishmen from the north of England, which I thought was really funny. You know, and he like and Chris Cormier used to call people petal. He's from Huddersfield, I think, and apparently well, flower. <laughs> and then uh, Wright says that. Chris Kwame insisted that he used to clean up with the women when he used to call them flower and petal and all the rest of it. He also talks about, at one point, I think Carlton Palmer wearing his black man northern clothes. <laughs> I don't even know what they are. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't, I don't He's wearing his black man northern clothes. Oh, <laughs> I don't know what that means. But I like it. I like it, right? Um, do you know what Chris Kwame does now for a living? Well, it's, not. In, it's in football, by the way, so it's not too much of a stretch. Chris Kwamia is currently the manager of the British Virgin Islands national football team. And obviously that's obscure enough. British Islands, I learned, is not even a country. It's a British overseas territory. So there are, how many countries are ranked in the world FIFA men's football, do you reckon? Do five? Not, not too bad. 211. And the British Virgin Islands are 209. <laughs> um, okay, where were we? Going back to... Like, I just want to uh, just pop back to uh, another interesting and funny little aside. He talks about, you know, football is still like playing football. And he just chops this line in. I still play five-a-side with my Albanian mates. The people on both teams love it. Everybody gets a lift. And for me, it's brilliant to talk to your team while you're playing. He's Albanian mates. He doesn't explain that at all. It just, he's Albanian mates. It's like, yeah, the only time right he plays football now is with his Albanian mates. Yeah, that... he fucking, is it taken? He has a very special set of skills. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's Albanians are particularly enamoured with. Just the Albanians he plays with now. <laughs> Never as explains it, just plays with his Albanian mates. Anyway, good for him. Yeah, that is funny. Um, but okay, so out goes Riach, but perhaps a bigger shock was the fellow who arrived. I remember that headline, Arsene, who I can remember just being like, his name's like Arsenal. I, I just couldn't really get past that. So incredible, um, you know, roll of the dice, really, from, from visionary... Um, chairman, I think he would like. Well, that's it. He, he literally writes it. David Dean is a visionary. That very word himself. But I mean, well, yeah, he's impressive. Plucked him from Monaco. Grandpa's eight in Japan. I mean, that's yeah. It was a big shout. Yeah, it was a big shout. Like getting Christian Gross in at Spurs. Um, I guess he spawned a lot of kind of tribute acts afterwards, didn't he? That didn't didn't go quite as quite as he well. Certainly did. But, well, another player, I mean, who helped to move that on as much, which is chapter three, 
is Dennis Bergkamp, mm. who was, just to reiterate, a David Deeden signing. Fuck all to do with Bruce Riot. It would be fair to say that Wrighty really, really, really loves Dennis Bergkamp. He has a good deal of time for him. Indeed, there is one quote which really stuck with me. I thought it was absolute gold. I don't know anybody who loves their wife and their family more than him. I don't think it's possible for somebody to love their missus more than he loves Henrietta. I looked up to Dennis in such a way that I would have asked myself, do you love your missus enough? And even if that marriage wasn't working, then I would have went, it would have ended it in a more proper, more dignified and amicable way. Yeah, what he's saying there is if he'd known Dennis Bergkamp earlier, he would have ended his previous marriage in a more respectable way. I mean, I don't know about that. That that seems to me a stretch. Mm. But fair enough. Yeah, well, he also told off Righty for drinking a cup of tea. So, well, that's just not cricket. Um, what was funny was he said um, that, and this is actually really sweet. He talks about, he roomed with Burkamp. And Burkamp had this, you know, massive impact on them in terms of professionalism and, and getting ready and all the rest of it. So like you say, again, uh, having to go with him for drinking a cup of tea, that kind of thing. But he said that uh, <laughs> when they started uh, roaming together, he, uh, Burkamp comes out of the bathroom one night wearing pyjamas. And Wright is like, what the fuck? He thinks this is so funny. And then a few days later, because Wright is so enamored with Burkamp, Wright was so pyjamas. <laughs> If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. He gets yeah. his own pajamas. I just, yeah, that is absolutely lovely, isn't it? Yeah, like, absolutely delightful. Look, Dennis, I've got some pajamas as well. <laughs> it's adorable. Absolutely <laughs> adorable. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, anecdotally, can I just say, I saw Ian Wright and Dennis Burkamp playing together against my team, and they were terrifying. Absolutely. I remember at the time, terrifying. Right, he did these little arced runs that were so smart. Yeah, it was like nothing I'd ever seen watching my team. Watching those two play together was, as as an opposing as an opposing fan, absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and and, and that's nice. Um, I think when you when in these books, footballers kind of explain why playing with such and such a player is different than you know playing with anyone they played with before is interesting. And he would say that like. Burkham would pass you the ball in a way that it would make up your mind for you. The ball would like spin into it a certain way and like, it's like, okay, well, this is the way to hit the shot. It's like, that's really remarkable to think that fellas have that level of precision and, and can think it's like 360 degree thinking or whatever. I don't know. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. And I think maybe often these books don't get into that because maybe footballers think that we're, I guess, ultimately all idiots and can't, can't, uh, can't, uh, yeah, couldn't possibly understand. Yeah. The level of depth. Well, that's it. That stayed with me. Yeah. That's it. He, he passed the ball. So whereby you could only pass it back to him, which gave him an extra set. Yeah. I really thought that was interesting. And that's, that's the next level of football that he's talking about, which he hadn't experienced before that a player like that would bring in. Right. Does that a bit in this book. Uh, later on when he talks about like you know talking to Seaman and Bob Wilson about like like being a student of of football and how he studied to improve being a striker and a finisher in particular I thought all that stuff was great I would I'd happily read that stuff all day yep it was genuinely interesting it was pretty dry subject matter but delivered in a way that was actually very insightful and very interesting and even for a 
a footballing nobody such as myself, I could understand. Yeah, and it only yeah only went to uh, burnish like uh, Burkamp's reputation in my eyes. I mean, he could obviously he's a good player, but he'd make everyone else twenty or thirty percent better. That's what he said, and like I think that's possibly possibly true. Uh, just one more uh, little note here is uh, he managed to throw in that fucking eagle stepping off anecdote. <laughs> if there is a football anecdote, I have heard more than that fucking Igor Stepanov's anecdote. Like, I'm not even going to retell it here. My God. I've heard that in about four different football autobiographies and about every <laughs> single football journalist that's ever been on a podcast. My God. Oh, really? I mean, had you not heard that part? Have you not heard that anecdote before? No, I think so. Oh, it's a funny anecdote. Well, it's worth, it's worth reading out there. Uh, he loved winding up Martin Keown. He loved to, they all apparently like to. Bully Martin Keown and this is Burkham, right? Yes, yeah, it's Burkham, and um, yeah, I think we can all understand that, right? Just look at look at Keown's face. <laughs> there was a time when we were all watching a game in which Igor Stepanovs was playing for Skonto Riga, and Ray Parler and Dennis decided to wind Martin Keown up. Stepanovs was terrible, but they sat there talking completely seriously about how brilliant he was. They were saying he was exactly the player our defence needed. And Martin was sitting behind them fuming. I'm sure if it had just been Ray Parler, nobody would have taken any notice. But because Dennis was part of it, suddenly became believable. The problem was that Arsene Wenger was listening to, and he only went and bought Stepanovs. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? But yeah, two lads just talking about a player, and Wenger's listening, going, ooh, ooh, maybe yeah. he is good. <laughs> when Ray is talking about what a, you know, Again, what a kind of a revolution it was that Wenger brought in he's saying that like, you know, they, he went for this no mark, this no name uh, French guy when he could have hired Terry Venables or Jerry Francis. Jerry Francis, like he was. Jerry Francis was right there. He was <laughs> right there. <laughs> you could take him right now, like uh, Mullen and all. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he kind of talks about uh, like in terms of the timeline. As you said, it kind of it kind of goes backwards. It's like memento, memento. Um, so I don't know. Are we done with Arsenal? Do we want to talk about Arsenal a bit more? There's another nice anecdote, which I just think is lovely. Once Wenger caught me on rollerblades in Highbury's Marble Halls. I was just doing it for a laugh, but he was absolutely dumbfounded. A man of his intelligence just couldn't compute why a professional footballer, an experienced one of that, at Arsenal, would be on rollerblades on a marble floor. Well, good question. And a 33-year-old, <laughs> he has to be at least 33 by this point, arsing yeah. around on his rollerblades. It, it does sound fun, doesn't it? It sounds like they're having a lovely old time. Yeah, it does sound like they're having a nice time, to be fair, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, so, Vera comes and he has, I suppose, an Indian summer, really, doesn't he? I think he was 33 when Wenger arrived and then he won the double, and of course, he had that uh, very iconic moment in which he scored this the 178 and 179 goal in the same match, ripping off his shirt in a fairly charming, uh, uh, kind of like scooping himself, doing it for the 178 goal when he's wearing a shirt that says 179, just did it. Very nice. What I felt about Arsene Wenger's time, once I finished at Arsenal and went to different clubs, was that I had left NASA. The supplements, the training regime, the diet, the stretching, the warming down. The preparation are commonplace among premiership sides now, but in 96 it was unheard of. So he left NASA and he went to Harry Redknapp's. <laughs> he went to Harry Redknapp's West Ham. So if Arsenal were NASA, what was Harry Redknapp's West Ham like? 
the yeah. North Korean space agency, <laughs> kids with a bottle rocket. Yeah, and um, I enjoyed that stuff about Redknapp. That Redknapp is, I guess he's maybe he's a political animal ultimately, and he'll be all about you when you arrive, saying things in the press. I can't believe they let him go, la la la. And then he just blank you in the corridor. He sounds like a bit uh, a bit odd, Harry. Yeah, he doesn't sound very bad. No, but he comes across very badly here. I think, as he says, he's just got no time for him now. Yeah, well, he he, he more or less accuses Wright of faking injury, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm sure that was offensive uh, to him. Yeah, I think, you know, if just one thing that makes footballers uh, angry is accurate or otherwise allegations of him faking injury. What I thought was nice was how he was saying that like um, keepers will shout at, shout at their defenders when they've fucked up just to, so it looks like the, like you know it's somebody else's fault. And I kind of always figured that was the case. But what I didn't realize is that strikers never really show their disappointment, even though they've like missed like so they've missed the guilt edged opportunity or whatever, and they're never like head and hands or whatever. Have you noticed that? No, that's right. And yeah, well, it is a sign of weakness, isn't it? It's yeah, you're going to get the next one, right? That's got to be that's got to be the mentality. That one got away. You'll get the next one. Put it behind you. It's gone. I think the thing that a lot of footballers struggle with most is, you know, they're waning when they're when the powers begin to wane. And I thought that um, anecdote of him, you know, being sold by Arsenal was was pretty interesting and pretty brutal, bearing in mind that we're talking about visionary David Dean um, and the Jesus-like Arsene Wenger, who came over to see him in France in 1998 during the, during the World Cup and essentially brought him into a room, sat him down and said, it's game over, man, uh, we're moving on without you. And then he was kind of shunted into the next room where I think his name is it Ian Story or, or Peter Story. The the yeah, West sure. the West Ham um, chairman at the time was there, so the whole thing happens really when when Wright's, I guess, blood is pounding in his ears or whatever. You know, his heart is running a million miles. It's and that's brutal. Um, it was. He was ambushed. He was ambushed there, and it, yeah, he didn't even time to think about. It. He said it was all over before he even knew. But yes, he'd lost his true love. Like that was it for him. Yeah, it was all downhill from there, obviously. I mean, he only lasted two more years in football, right, after that. In terms of the England stuff, so you're an England fan. Um, he played 33 times and scored nine goals. What is, you know, how was he perceived that by England fans at the time? And, like, in terms of should he have played more? Uh, and then in terms of, like, was he kind of, was there always a clamour for him to play? And was he kind of a... a a fella held in a lot of affection. Well, that's that's one. I mean, at the time, there's a point about Graham Taylor leaving him out of a 92 squad. Now, I looked at the players he did take in the 92 squad, and one of them was Nigel Clough. So I would imagine, and that was certainly post-Nigel Clough being at his uh, peak. So he must have felt very, uh, very hard done by there. Yeah. By the time 96 comes around, he was not such a significant figure. But then at that time, England really did have an absolute phalanx of uh, quality strikers. 
We had Robbie Fowler, Ferdinand, Shearer, Collymore. Yeah. There's more, but yeah, there was a lot back then. So I was, I didn't feel it so uh, acutely, but 92, he must have felt absolutely robbed. I, I don't know. Obviously, you know, Graham Taylor is kind of a, a widely lampooned figure, maybe a widely forgotten figure at this stage, but for a long time he was quite a a, a figure of fun. Uh, but yeah, Wright has, didn't have much time for, for boring old, boring old Taylor. No, he gives him quite the uh, quite the dressing down at one point, although I say he regrets that now and has since subsequently worked with Graham Taylor. I believe Graham Taylor is meant to be, well, was was meant to be a very, very nice man. He had, yeah, kind of a, a series of managers. It seems Venables, he doesn't go into a lot of detail about Venables, but he talked because Venables had, tried, had shown an interest in signing him uh, for Spurs before he went to Arsenal. So he thought maybe he would... Um, he would get a chance there, but uh, Venables is kind of like you say. I suppose Shearer came along, um, but the thing that seems to have upset uh, Wright about his about that period was that just that he wasn't even on the bench, and he said that it was his destiny well, to score, to come on and score um, a chance in the semi final against Germany in 1996. Do you remember this particular chance that he's talking about? I mean, do I fucking remember that, Charles? Johnny? Yes, of course I remember that. Charles. Yes, I do. I very much remember Charles. If Gaza had just got longer studs on, it would have been. Yeah, I, I do remember that chance very much. But this is one of his, uh, yeah, his hypotheticals, and we'll come back to that. He says that a few times. If things had gone a little bit differently, I can assure you, this would have happened for sure. He he really did fancy huddle, and I don't know to what extent footballers their their respect and esteem to what extent is it just tied to how much they how much of a crack they gave different players like you know so huddle did even though Wright was later in his career huddle is the only one who really seemed to give him a shake um and he says that huddle was the best of all of those guys and had england had the 96 squad in 98 they would have won the world cup discuss but, yeah, maybe, maybe Darren Anderton, World Cup champion, like just to, to rewind, like uh, right to the very beginning. Again, Wright is such a charming guy, and he talks about, um, and this is where I, I probably can't resist making a Vardy comparison because Vardy was going to shy off on his first England call up. Wright, on the other hand, described wearing the kit around his bedroom and just looking at himself in the mirror. Oh, that's nice. He's just lovely, isn't he? He's just lovely. He's, he's, he's what you want a footballer to be. He's, he's one of us. He's a fan. Did this book change your opinion of Mark Viduka? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. Like, yeah, it just... <laughs> Fuck off. I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really good. Although, obviously, from a football manager point of view, that's absolutely horrendous, isn't it? Yeah, so that is, uh, so to explain, and uh, he's, his third club after Arsenal, he went West Ham, uh, Forest, and Celtic, but he played in the very famous uh, 3-1 loss to uh, Inverness Caledonian Thistle, which is immortalised in the, in the, in the headline, uh, Super Cali Ballistic Celtic are atrocious. Um, 
but at half time uh, they were losing well i think maybe they're losing 2-0 at half time the last 3-1 and uh mark Viduka just refused refused to go out and Wright says that's the only time in his professional career actually he doesn't even specify his professional career the only time he's seen somebody refuse to play uh for their team also just very quickly talking of players that were pricks when go he on. first got with the england squad Steve oh yeah go on, sorry yeah yeah this i love this stuff go on this is a nice anecdote so steve mcmahon was a prick as soon as he turned up to the england uh england training squad steve mcmahon was just being horrible to him but he got his own back <laughs> it's a lovely way Apparently, he went in for a tackle with Steve McMahon, you, where he you, caught him. Years later, right? Years later. Years later, after he'd made his first England training squad of misery, he got, got, he got his stud and he slit his penis, apparently, all the way down. He slit his penis. And Steve McMahon said, from that point onwards, whenever he got a boner, it would hurt, and he'd think about Ian Wright's face. <laughs> oh, that's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> so you got it yeah. back, like yeah, every that, time I'm aroused, I think of Ian Wright slitting is, my penis. <laughs> that, is, that is top quality stuff. Um, it was interesting uh, when he went from West Ham to Forest, and he said that Forest was progressive because it was under Platt, uh, and Platt had played for Wenger, and. He had spent a lot of time in Italy and was an Italian speaker, apparently. So he was progressive enough in terms of, of his methods. But he didn't like Celtic, which is funny because I remember reading De Canio saying how he loved being at Celtic in the the um, atmosphere, this kind of like, you know, I guess De Canio is, he's known for, isn't he kind of an ultra kind of character? But uh, Oh, he's a fascist. Pure yeah. and fascist. Like... Uh, Wright had no, he had no truck with this carry on. He said it wasn't like football. I think Ian, he just doesn't understand hatred like that. That's how I read it like that. He just, he doesn't have that hatred in his, in his heart and he can't understand it from anyone else and he doesn't admire it. Yeah. No, he really, really hated being at Celtic. And yeah, generally when you read people about players, they talk warmly about that, but not mm. righty. Although that might've been a particularly bad time to be at Celtic as well. But then he, <laughs> uh, he goes full on Robbie Keane when he talks about Millwall, saying it's the first club they fell in love with, which is obviously fine for any player to say, unless they've already said it in the same book about another team. And he said, really it. loves West Ham, really <laughs> loves Millwall, and he really loves Arsenal. Yeah, well, like the Arsenal thing came later, that's fine. But he says both about Millwall and West Ham that they're the first club that he fell in love with. He, he says he always expected to finish his career at Millwall, but he finished at Burnley. And there's not really much to say there, is there? Well, just one thing. Um, he refers to Stan Turnant as being a very handsome northerner. And that just clicked in my brain. I was like, is he? And I, I just had to quickly Google it. And, <laughs> I do not disremember what Stan Turner looks like. I think, again, it's a very very kind case of uh, Ian Wright being very generous in his assessment of people. Very handsome, Stan Turner. That's kind of the first half of the book. The book is divided. Yeah, perfect. Part one, part two. And if he'd finished the book there, I think I would have been satisfied enough that was a nice read. But like you said, you know, the stuff about 
footballers' childhoods is often not that interesting, but this was very interesting. Let your body spin Like there is nothing In life but dancing Just look like you